Our scripture reading this morning comes from Malachi 4, 1 through 3. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Julie. Let's pray. God, we recognize that uh, the hearing of your word is not just something that we do naturally, but it's something that is done supernaturally through the power of your spirit. And so, God, we ask this morning that each and every one of us would be um, filled with your spirit to hear your word, that you would come down and that you would speak and that we would be hearers. And not just hearers only, but doers also. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The country of Iraq, or if you're American, you probably pronounce it Iraq, isn't just hot. It is punishingly hot. Record-breaking oven-like hot. During my deployment there, temperatures regularly reached 120 degrees or more. I can recall a time sitting on a, in a, inside a broken C-130 aircraft on a sweltering runway in July, wearing complete body armor and helmet and weapons and gear, feeling as if my insides were almost being cooked. Smashed between soldiers and prisoners, preparing to transfer prisoners from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to Afghanistan. Misery, agonizing misery, panic-stricken wretchedness. That's what 120 degrees feels like, squished into an environment of virtual suffocation. Sweat poured, soaking uniform and skin to the bone. And without the nearly steaming hot water we consumed from the practically melting hot water bottles that we drank from, we surely would have passed out, and not to be too dramatic, perhaps even eventually perished. If you wish to know what that might feel like, I would encourage you to put on your winter gear, Turn on your oven to 400 degrees and open it and stand in front of it as long as and as close as you might dare. As I sat there, I said my prayers in a state of desperation, unsure as to whether or not I would get out of that day unscathed. In fact, many succumbed to heat exhaustion. And it was in that moment, on that runway, that I came closer to a sense of what hell might be like than I ever have before. We see the same hellish reality for those who reject God in today's text. 
For some, the day that I had in Iraq won't even compare to the misery that awaits those opposed to or ambivalent towards God. But we also see the elated joy of those who fear the Lord. Which brings us to the main idea of our text today, and that is a day will come when the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, will rise to judge the wicked and vindicate those who fear the Lord. A day will come when the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, will rise to judge the wicked and vindicate those who fear the Lord. Amidst a world going its own way, friends, we need God's intervention. We need him to make all things right. If scripture proves anything, and I believe it proves a great deal, it proves man's utter inability to do the right thing, ultimately speaking. I hope and pray that as we unpack this text together, that each of us will see our need for Jesus. Now, to give us some context, back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, God had reminded his people that he had sovereignly elected them to be his. They had returned from Persian exile about a hundred years before, still under Persian rule with their land reduced to a mere fraction of its former glory. As a result, they had forgotten God's love because their sinfulness had caused them to experience God's judgment. So God called them in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1 to give, them their, give him their best, for he is worthy. Instead, they brought God their worst, offering sacrifices that were blind, lame, and sick. And so God cursed the priests in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, for allowing this, chastising them for their failure to give honor to God by guarding knowledge and seeking his instruction. And as the priests had gone, so had gone the people. One unfaithfulness led to another, which led to a practical outworking of unfaithfulness to God in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, manifested in unfaithfulness in their marriage relationships. Now, the inevitability of this happening was no wonder, for God's messengers had failed to honor God and lead the people in the way that they should go. So God promised in chapter 2, verse 17, on into chapter 3, verse 5, that he would send his own messenger to both vindicate his people through trial and to deliver them through judgment of sinfulness. Then in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, God addressed another practical outworking of unfaithfulness to God, manifested in unfaithfulness in what they offered him and how they both viewed and used their finances. God, in fact, cursed the self-indulgence of his people, but blessed those who faithfully used the resources entrusted to them in ways that honored him. And then we saw in verse 13 through 18 of chapter 3, where all this unfaithfulness ultimately originated. It originated in a lack of fear, in a lack of reverence for God. But those who feared God would be spared this coming judgment. In today's passage, judgment has come. 
we see in verse 1 the fate of evildoers. Right at the start of this first verse, we're told to behold. In other words, to pause. Consider both the weight and the magnitude of what God needs to convey to each and every one of us. We don't want to gloss over this. It's important. And just in case we gloss over this call to behold, Malachi offers a familiar emphasis in Hebrew writing in the use of repetition. Twice he says to them, the day is coming, or the day that is coming. Meaning that what he has to say regarding this day is vitally significant. It's one of the most significant days that he could speak of. It's not Christmas Day or Easter Sunday. It's certainly not your birthday. It's not D-Day, but it is the day. In Malachi's day, a day of moral ambiguity and confusion regarding absolute moral standards, a day kind of like our day. A day will come, it says, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Meaning that judgment cometh. This is the day of the Lord, judgment day. Not a day of terminators, but of God the adjudicator coming to make settlement regarding justice. And we see from this passage that he comes to judge two types of sinners in particular. Number one, the arrogant, or or those who want no part with God. Those who think they're doing well enough without him. Let me just say that the arrogant are not necessarily those obvious, pompous types. It's not just those. It's anyone, no matter how outwardly humble they appear, anyone who thinks they can do life without God. He comes to judge the arrogant and secondly, the evildoer or the ungodly, those who do not keep God's absolute moral standards. Perhaps they don't even know God's absolute moral standards written in his word who feel perhaps very little to no sorrow for their sin, who make little to no effort to repent. And those who judge right and wrong, by their own sense and by their own standard of what they believed right and wrong to be, will be judged rightly and found wrong. Those arrogant and evildoers who call evil good and good evil, as we read in Isaiah 5.20, given to following the spirit of the age. You all know what I'm talking about. We see this very much happening in our own reality. The spirit of the age dictates what we think and believe almost to the same dogmatic religious fervor that we've seen in any other ideology. Those given to following the spirit of the age rather than the Holy Spirit of God will in this day come to see the error of their ways. What they thought and what they believed with such certitude will result in a painful, unending reality of judgment. Notice it says that they will be stubble. In in other words, they will be brought low, but not destroyed. 
Now, this quells the notion of annihilationism, where some believe that the wicked will be snuffed out completely, where they will not experience eternal judgment. No, no. They will, according to John the Baptist in Matthew 3.12, be burned like chaff. That's the same idea that we see here in Malachi, chaff, stubble, with unquenchable fire. It's unquenchable. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. It's unending. And lest we think that the arrogant and the evildoer only belong to that class of truly heinous evil, your serial killers and your sadists and your Nazis, God would have us know that anyone who does not bow the knee to him confess with their mouth his lordship, as we read in Philippians, and, and confess their, his right to rule and reign over them, fits in this category. They don't have to be all that bad outwardly. I want you to notice, in fact, the red-hot, fiery words he uses throughout these three verses. It says, burning, oven, ablaze, a sun rising, and ashes. Now, thankfully, those are not the only words that he uses in this passage. We'll get to those in a little bit. But for now, let us behold what this is and who it's for. For some, it's going to be a terrible reality. From Malachi's perspective, it's a coming day, meaning something in the future. From our perspective, it's a day that both has come in one sense and will come in another sense, meaning a day both past and future. In terms of past, again, John the Baptist spoke of one coming after him who will gather his wheat into the barn but burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus, in fact, says of himself at his first coming in John 9.39, for judgment I came into this world, meaning that the process of judgment has already begun in the first coming of Christ where Jesus has begun to make separation between those who fear him and those who do not, gathering his people but passing over the arrogant and the evildoer until that future coming day when judgment will be consummated or finished at his second coming. It says in that day, that day that is coming, will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Eternal separation from the mercy of God so freely offered to anyone who would but turn from their sins, turn from trusting in themselves to trusting in Christ. And it's interesting to note here the use of the word branch. In fact, Zechariah often refers to the coming Messiah as the branch. Same idea that we see here in verse 1 where he says that this day will leave them neither root nor branch. Meaning that those who refuse to walk in the Lord's way and keep the Lord's charge as the Lord calls them to in Zechariah chapter 3 verses 7 through 9 will be separated from this branch, will be separated from Jesus, uprooted, cast into the fire as Jesus says in Matthew 13, 50. Can we contemplate so grim a reality? 
In the year 1741, one of America's most important and original philosophical theologians, Jonathan Edwards, tried to contemplate so grim a reality in one of his most famous sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a sermon used by God in the great awakening of many converted souls. In that sermon, he said, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And all wicked men's pains and contrivance which they use to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men, do not secure them from hell one moment. And in short, he says, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. He says, oh sinner, consider the fearful danger that you're in. It is a great furnace of wrath a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed. You hang, he says, by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder, and you have no interest in any mediator. Nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you've ever done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Therefore, he says, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Friends, how can we be ambivalent about eternity, considering this passage. I don't mean to scare anyone. I only mean to motivate each and every one of us to see the reality that comes for some, that comes for those perhaps hostile to, those ambivalent about, those unconcerned with their standing before God in judgment someday. Friends, let's be assured that that day will be more real than this day. Can we see it? Can we feel it? Can we imagine what it will be like? How might considering this coming day change how we live? If we knew that we had only a month left before this coming day, what might we do differently? Now, I'm not suggesting that we quit jobs or go crazy but to sober ourselves as to what we're living for. If you only had a month, what would you do differently? May I suggest that we should probably live in light of this coming day with our lamps lit, ready for the bridegroom to return at any one moment as we read in Matthew 25. I'm currently reading a book called The Wager. A tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder in one of my book clubs. During the shipwreck, true story by the way, a few of the crew abandon all hope and reason during the shipwreck. And they simply turn to the alcohol left aboard the ship and drink themselves drunk. 
They do not bother to board the lifeboats to get to the nearby island. They do not take care of the sick. They offer no assistance to anyone in need. Instead, they stay aboard the wreckage, ambivalent to the fact that the pounding waves against the hull of that ship will eventually tear it asunder, turning instead to liquid cowardice in their despair. Friends, God does not call us to despair, but warns of coming judgment early enough that we might have time to seek shelter from the coming storm under the shadow of the Almighty. In verse 1, we see the fate of evildoers, a fate that can, in fact, be altered in the interim. While God tarries, he extends mercy to everyone, even to the vilest offender who would but repent and believe, which leads us to the one who can alter so wretched an estate as we come to verses 2 and 3. In fact, we see the son of righteousness. Hmm, who might that be? says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Herein we get a picture of a new day dawning. A day comes for some that will bring terror unspeakable, but a day comes for others that brings both light and healing. As promised in Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. God reserves such blessing, it says here, to those who fear, those who revere, those who worship Him, those who recognize their sinful estate, those who seek God's forgiveness through His Son, the mediator Christ Jesus called the Son of Righteousness here. It's not for the good people and the holy people, it's for those who know their need. Notice that Malachi compares the appearance of the coming Messiah with the rising of the sun. The cold, dark night where danger can most easily lurk replaced by the warmth, light, and security and all that the rising sun reveals in a new day dawning. Recently, uh, coyotes have been spotted in my neighborhood of Green Tree. For those who don't know, Green Tree is not some remote neighborhood, mind you, not a neighborhood nestled against a forest, but a populated neighborhood nestled against Interstate 376. Coyotes. And I have to be kind of cautious about letting my little dog, Gizmo, out in the early morning before dawn. I don't know what's waiting out there. It's not necessarily safe, certainly not nearly as warm when it's not light. Friends, might I suggest that that is life without Christ, metaphorically speaking. Cold, dark, dangerous reality. When we think of the rising sun, we certainly think of its beauty, but we also think of what it typically brings, as as I've already mentioned, warmth, light, even safety. I'm particularly appreciative of each of these in the winter months when we get less of each of those. But I want you to notice here what this new dawn brings. What does it say? Son of what? Righteousness. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, bringing light, warmth, and safety, spiritually speaking. 
Now, in one sense, that dawning has already begun in the hearts of God's people. Yet, in another sense, we await the day when the Son of Righteousness will arise completely and we will be completely healed of all that plagues us. Sin and death shall be no more. We need this so desperately. Might I suggest that until that day, we need to be mindful of how God works between our day and this coming day. Number one, we may not get perfect justice between now and then. It might not be all that right for us between now and then. That's not promised now. Secondly, vengeance belongs to God and not to us. If you've been wronged, leave it to him. He will take care of it in his own time. And thirdly, God remains slow to anger, wishing that all should repent. So what do we do in the interim? Might I suggest a couple of things? Number one, I think we worship. We live for this son of righteousness. Until that day, we sing the message that we sing each Christmas right here in this verse in Malachi. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. I want you to notice, though, as we move into the next part of verse 2, the reaction of the God-fearer to this dawning reality. Notice what it is. It's joy. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Pure joy and freedom unlike anything that we've ever experienced in the cold, dark night before the dawn of our salvation. I know many a believer here can attest to the change that you feel. We lay bound to our sin as much as a calf stood constrained in its stall over a long winter. As confined as I felt in my roasting, sweat-soaked body armor in the belly of that broken C-130 aircraft, stalled on the runway in the scorching heat of Iraq. But then, for some, John 8.36 becomes a reality. It says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. This freedom from Christ's healing wings results in the same kind of boundless elation a calf would experience after being pent up for an extended period in an enclosed space. And so I ask you this morning, if you are a Christian, are you a leaping calf Christian? Do you know the excitement? Do you know the gratitude? Do you know the joyful freedom that your salvation has brought? Or are you more like that gloomy, depressed, old, gray, stuffed donkey on Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh? The Eeyore who expects little from life and experiences little of the happiness of those around him? Do we realize that we have much to be joyful for? Do we realize that Scripture, in fact, commands joy for those who fear God? It's not optional. It's essential. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Luke 6, 23, leap for joy. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. 
1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. And just in case you missed that, again, I will say rejoice. And on and on. Finally, again, Luke 6, 22 and 23. Let me read this in whole. It says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Same idea that we see here in Malachi 4, 2. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Do you feel hated, excluded, reviled, spurned, all because you follow Jesus and love what he loves and hate what he hates. Let me just say that you're in good company. Jesus knows what that feels like. And how does he tell us to feel about all that negativity directed our way? Rejoice, he says. Rejoice. Leap for joy. Behold, our reward is great in heaven. Let me suggest this to us. We certainly need to look around us and see those in need. We certainly need to look within us and evaluate how we're doing. But if we're not looking up to the one who's working all things for good, we're doing it wrong. And we will eventually despair. So certainly look around at others. Certainly look within and evaluating yourself. But don't forget to look up. Brothers and sisters, a consummate melancholy Christian is somewhat of a contradiction in terms. We've been called to rejoice even amidst trial, even amidst suffering. Now that does not mean that we will never be sorrowful. In fact, God commands in Romans 12, 15 to weep with those who weep. But just as God is not indifferent to his glory, neither is he indifferent to our joy. Just as God is not indifferent to his glory, neither is he indifferent to our joy. It says we will go out leaping, which leads finally, quickly to verse 3, where we see the trampling of the wicked. And it says, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in all honesty, I sat for two days just thinking about this verse before I could really unpack it. I mean, in some sense, it's a bit disturbing when you think about it abstractly. If a faceless, unidentified group of believers trampled down an equally faceless, unidentified group of wicked people, we might be somewhat sympathetic to the wicked. But I think that's because we often minimize sin. I mean, are we truly more merciful than God? Are we truly more sympathetic to the wicked than God? But what if we thought about someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, theologian, murdered by the Nazi regime? What if upon his resurrection from the dead, he went out leaping like a calf from the stall, like a man reborn, and tread over the already consumed ashes of Heinrich Himmler? Now, as dark as that image might be, we probably would not see 
anything wrong with the picture. What this verse communicates, it is that God ultimately brings justice, not us. Vengeance is his and not ours. The sins of the wicked are ultimately sins against God, more so than they are sins against us. We simply participate in God's victory over sin as surely as we participate in the suffering itself, trampling the ashy remains of the wicked in a reversal of roles. Just as when Abraham said to the rich man in Luke 16.25, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in anguish, so too will believers experience the goodness and mercy of God while the wicked experience his judgment. In closing, let me ask you, Do we know of unbelievers right now whom we love, whom it would bring tears to our eyes to imagine this sort of reality for them? Shouldn't that compel us to share the hope we have within us rather than to be concerned with what they might think or say if we told them the mercy that Christ wishes to extend to each and every one of them? to turn from trusting in something other than Christ to trusting in Christ. If we saw this coming day as more real, as more urgent than our own day, and our own comfort in our own day, perhaps we would be emboldened to share in such a way that makes this coming day as real for them as the day that we're in. And I know that many of us have shared that with them. We pray weekly for different people in our community groups. Again and again through tears and much prayer, and they refuse to turn. And their refusal, as sad as it is, is not something that we control. We do what God commands us to do. We will continue to do what God calls us to do in sharing the hope that we have within us. But a day will come when the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, will rise to judge the wicked, but vindicate those who fear the Lord. What role might God have each and every one of us play in ensuring the same joy, the same elation and freedom that Christians will one day experience as God vindicates us. Let us flee and let us help others to flee from the wrath to come.